Hello and welcome to part two of this episode on the great Australian all-rounder Warwick Armstrong with his biographer Gideon Haig. My name is Tom Ford. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform so you'll never miss an episode. Returning to the uh, the early part of his career, he finds success at uh, state level or even the pre-runner to state, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, playing for the colonies. Um, and he eventually makes mm. his debut in the second test of the 1901-02 mm. series against Archie McLaren's visiting English uh, side at the MCG. Mm. Um it's a remarkable match uh, for many reasons. Um, Reggie Duff also makes his test debut and happens to make a test century. But it's a remarkable match. And this is something, another aspect of the golden age I love, is when you look at scorecards, if you look at scorecards today, they're very regular, I suppose, and consistent. You know mm, that yeah. David Warren's yes. going to open... And, uh, you know, um, uh, Steve Smith's always going to come in at, say, number four. But with this match, if you were to look solely at the scorecard, you suddenly see in the second innings Clem Hill coming at seven, Victor Trumper at eight, Monty Noble at nine, Reggie Duff, who was normally an opening batsman, at ten, and Warwick mm. Armstrong comes in at 11. Um, this is all to mm. do with uh, a sticky wicket or at least playing in it the is, eras of yeah. uncovered pitches, which is so foreign to modern cricket fans these days. Um, there was a real art in captaincy back then, wasn't there, Gideon, in terms of reshaping the batting order to give your batsman the best mm. opportunity to succeed. Yes, yeah, and to um, and to sometimes delay their coming in in order that a pitch might improve. Uh, it's a remarkable test match. Uh, Australia made 112. England were bowled out on a sticky for 61. And Australia reversed its order, basically, in that uh, in that second innings. Hugh Trumbull comes in to open the batting with, uh, with Joe Darling. And the tail enders are sent in first to buy time for the batters coming in lower down. Yeah, Clem Hill gets 99, batting at, uh, batting at number seven. And as you say, uh, Reggie Duff and, uh, and and Warwick Armstrong put on 120 for uh, for the last wicket to to uh, create for uh, Australia an unassailable lead. I, I think this was um, one of the things that Warwick would later stress in his critique of later cricket: how much cricket lost as a result of moving into an era of doped and covered pitches. Uh, that's why he was insistent on Victor Trumper being the best player he'd never seen, even though his era spanned Donald Bradman as well. He just said that the uh, the versatility required of, uh, of of cricketers in that in that pre-war period uh, set a, a task for batters and for bowlers that uh, that just made them better all-round cricketers. He finds success, obviously, in that series, and he's then selected to tour England in the 1902 series, which um, 
it's probably where he forms that opinion of Trumper as the greatest batsman because it's a particularly mm, wet yes. season and, and Trumper just dominates when yes. most others fail. But during that series is when an incident occurs that is one of the first signs we get of Warwick um, and his, I suppose, stubbornness and highly principled uh, way of doing things um, is that during that series there are comments made in an English newspaper mm. um, uh, which later turns out to have been made by Jack Worrell, former Australian cricketer, mm. saying yes. that uh, on the 1899 tour everyone knew that Monty Noble was a chucker. Effectively, that's what he's saying. Mm. Um, the Australian yes. players find out pretty swiftly that these comments were made by Worrell, um, who at the time was Warwick Armstrong's uh, Victorian captain. Uh, On returning to Australia, he refuses to play in the same side as Worrell and it escalates, and this is the short version, it escalates to the point where it effectively ruins uh, Worrell's cricket career. Um, is this yeah. is this is this typical Warwick behaviour? Um, and you know, do you think this is what he he is this who he was as a person? Someone who would just stubbornly refuse uh, to play cricket with his own captain based on the fact of some comments mm. he made. Yeah, uh, don't leave out here that um, that Worrell, I think, also cast aspersions on Jack Saunders' action mm. as well, who yes. was a member of that 1902 team, uh, and they both refused to, uh, to to play with with Worrell. I think yes, it is a reflection of uh, of, of Warwick's character that um, that incipient militance that that we can see there, but I think it's also to do with the sheer clannishness of of that generation of of players. Don't forget that when players went on tour, uh, they were not just teammates. They were commercial partners. They were, uh, at the end of the tour, they would separate the tour proceeds. So they were partners as as, as well as um, uh, playing in the same team. They were, they were, they were commercial co-venturers. So that inevitably leads to a tremendous sense of collegiality and a kind of a one touch one touch all attitude, and there could be no more serious aspersion cast on a player that their action was uh, was was unfair. I think you're you're beginning to see the the outlines of um, the attitude that Australian players took when the Australian Board of Control emerged in in 1905 and tried by stealth to uh, to take over management of the game. You know, the players stuck together through thick and thin. It's remarkable how they remained shoulder to shoulder through all those disputes from, from 1905 through to, to the First World War. And not one of them breaks ranks. Uh, so, you know, Warwick is perhaps the most stubborn of all, but it's an attitude that he's inherited from the likes of Joe Darling, Monty Noble, uh, and even Victor Trumper. Um, you know, he looked up to them as Warwick looked up to them as cricketers, but he also looked up to them as men. That's a fair point. Um, you've mentioned this already, but I'd just like to return briefly to the um, infamous uh, leg theory bowling that he adopts in the following tour of England mm-hmm. in 1905. 
um, where, as you say, uh, he took one for 67 of 52 overs. Um, league theory today is largely monopolized by Douglas Jardine and Larwood during the Bodyline series, mm, yeah. which was yeah. uh, leg theory to the extreme. It was a very aggressive type bowling, mm. um, you know, bounces largely on the batsman's uh, top of the shoulder to intimidate them. Um, mm. But leg theory in Warwick's time was not that, was it? It was it was literally bowling um, almost. Uh, unplayable deliveries down the leg side in a slow way almost in the hope that you would bore the cr- the batsman out into making a false stroke is that a fair mm. assessment yeah that's not a bad assessment i mean don't forget that uh neither jardine nor larwood agreed with the designation bodyline they called it leg theory as well and they said that it was uh, an ancient art uh, it went back to um, to Armstrong, and even before Armstrong, there were bowlers who uh, who pursued that particular line. Uh, it was um, what you can't forget about cricket in the golden age is that although test matches in Australia were timeless, test matches in England were three days. So if you could bowl 52 overs, one for 67, you're a good chance of slowing down the game and potentially... Uh, neutralizing it um i think there were there were three draws in that uh, in that 1905 series and i think the australians did understand that they had a fairly weak attack and that it was pretty important to keep the game from running away from them and warwick was an important part of that initiative in the end it didn't avail them because they they lost the ashes but um but it was a tactic of its time this we're talking pre the sweep shot here there's no real there's no such thing as a sweep shot probably the closest thing you've got is is the pull drive uh the sweep shot has doesn't really spread until after the first world war i don't think you see an illustration of a of a sweep shot in an instructional book until uh dj knight's book i think that's the that's the first example uh so there isn't an obvious countermeasure to balls bold on or outside the line of leg stump. And, of course, batsmen, I think, in those days were more limited. The game gloried in the offside strokes. Mm. And uh, certainly as far as English amateur batting was concerned, the, the leg side strokes did not come as naturally and were looked upon with with some disapproval. You know, it was the, it was the cross-bat village greener who hit towards the leg side. It was the, it was the pedigreed English amateur who explored the, uh, the the quadrant in in front of the wicket, um, you know, between point and mid off. It's it, that's a good point, and it's a point uh, stressed by my previous guest Ian Wilton, uh, C. B. Fry's biographer, who makes the point yes. that it's someone to the uh, ability of Fry and also Ranji, who are really some mm. of the first amateur batsmen to start using leg side strokes um, and mm. to not be worried so much about the uh, preconceived notions that amateurs shouldn't be playing on the uh, on the onside mm. as batsmen. Um, mm. And so yeah. this period that Armstrong's emerging is also when leg side strokes begin to emerge for amateur batsmen. It's really interesting, I suppose, and important to to put that in context. Um, 
Gideon your or it gives them the opportunity to develop those strokes. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. I mean, if you look at, say, Beldum and Fry's uh, Great Batsman series, um, mm. predominantly the strokes are offside and or down the wicket. There's yeah. a few, you know, there's photos, of course, of Ranji playing wristy shots, uh, leg glances, etc. Mm. Um, and the... Uh, what was the famous? Was it the the draw shot or something he developed through the legs? Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But but you know very few pull shots, um, and it really took uh, batsmen who we would uh, classify as aggressive and predominantly Australian batsmen like a Darling or a Clem Hill mm. to yeah. demonstrate yeah. those those strokes. Um, Gideon, your book. Um, is really still to this day a starting point for many researchers who want to know about this faction between um, the Australian cricketers and the Board of Control, which emerges, uh, Mm. as you say, around 1905. There's a huge lead up to it, back and forth between players. There's rumblings happening. Um, Joe Darling is, of course, probably the main player uh, representing the players, being the captain uh, Monty Noble um, uh, steps up as well, which forces him to be banned from captaining New South Wales, etc., for a while. And then, of course, it, um, it reaches its climax with Clem Hill, who almost throws a selector out of a window uh, mm. in 1912. Mm. Um, Warwick Armstrong is largely a bystander through all this. He's obviously on the side of the players, Um but all through this, he's really not having a huge involvement. He is, of course, having. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily. I know. I wouldn't say that. I okay. wouldn't say that. He's certainly. He's not one of the New South Wales players who's recruited by the Melbourne Cricket Club to uh, to, to play in that putative 1906-7 Ashes tour that, that never takes place. You know, it's Noble, yeah. Trumpeduff, Carter, Cotter, Hopkins, and, uh, and and a few others. But they don't need to sign him because they've already got him. Um, you know, if 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 Melbourne Cricket Club has a plan to stage an inbound tour of uh, of Australia by an England team, Warwick's going to be part of it. Warwick's going to be yeah. front and centre in it. And when the Australian team is talking about, or it's it, there are discussions about the circumstances under which the Australian team will go to England in 1909, Warwick is right in the middle of that. Warwick's one of the players who refuses to sign his contract. Mm. Warwick is so strongly opposed to Peter McAllister's place on the tour as a player and a treasurer that he won't play in games that mm. McAllister is is playing in uh, in England. Now, the players successfully isolated the first uh, spy placed in their camp um, in, in 1909. And, uh, you know, Warwick gives McAllister nothing. And he will not accept the dominion of the board. Uh, and he's, you know, Monty Noble falls by the by the wayside. You know, Monty Noble, the acrimony is too much for, for mild-mannered Monty. Uh, Clem Hill doesn't go to England in 1909. He can't hack it either. But Armstrong goes, and he goes under his own flag, as it were. You know, he's mm. sort of unconquerable and dominant. You know, he... Bowls a match-winning spell, gets six for thirty-five in that uh, in that Lords Test. Uh, he's he's the most formidable personality, and he's the one who uh, 
never bows before the authority of the board, even if it means him not going to England in, uh, in, in 1912. Uh, it's not only the board that's machinating against him, it's the Victorian Cricket Association who have a very, very troubled relationship with him throughout. Uh, they're constantly trying to... They know that he's the best player in, uh, in Victoria, but they... He's evasive about selection. He's censured by the VCA. They nearly ban him permanently in a dispute over expenses in 1907-8. When there are the meetings ahead of the 1909 tour of England, Warwick stands up and he says, what's the board going to do with the money? The players are taking all the hard knocks and making all the money. We should have a little idea of where the money is going. Uh, In 1910-11, he has a rumble with the VCA about the players' entitlement to complimentary tickets. In 11-12, it's revealed the VCA is machinating against Armstrong's captaincy. In 12-13, they actually remove him as captain. Uh, He's replaced by a stooge, um, Arnie Seitz, for for a season. In 1913-14, the VCA reappoint him as captain, and then he resigns (laughs) at lunchtime on the first day of a Shield game when they declined to make the appointment permanent. Uh, And then he comes back in 14-15 and he leads Victoria to victory in the Sheffield Shield, Mm. maybe just to annoy everyone. He's a fantastic refusenik. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine sharing a dressing room with him or even sharing a drink with him, but boy, oh boy, he was tough. Uh, It's almost as though the entire... Forces of Australian cricket are ranged against him, and he will not—he will not bow before them. Be a sport and join the fun, jolly good fellows, everyone. Come along, be one of the boys. Where do you think this? Um, I keep using the the sort of the phrase, you know, issue with authority. Where do you think this ca- actually comes from with Warwick? Was there something in his early years? Was his was his father a, a particular authoritarian? Uh, no. Was there something that you can trace back to where he this personality comes from? Well, well, I think you're, I think you're making a mistake there, um, in the sense that you're looking backwards. You're looking at the Australian Board of Control through the uh, in the context of Cricket Australia, when it's been you know the all-powerful government in Australian cricket since 1905. It was a fledgling body mm. in 1905 mm. uh, that arrogated powers to itself. Uh, yeah, it's and it's very shrewdly marshaled by by Millie, Billy McElhern and uh, and Ernie Bean, but you know. There's every reason to think that if it was opposed um, with sufficient unanimity and forcefulness, that it would go the same way as the Australasian Cricket Council, the first attempt to form a, uh, a national cricket government in Australia that failed in, in 1900 because the cricketers basically wouldn't accept its authority. So in some respects, you know, Armstrong would have regarded himself as the authority. Uh, the players would have regarded themselves as central mm. to the game. They would have regarded the board as the rebel alliance mm. uh, to be put down, to be put in its place. And it just so happens that they're outmaneuvered by you know, some very clever 
very able and surprisingly young, mm. uh, young middle class professionals in Bean and um, and and McElhone. And by the time the game is reconstituted after the First World War, all the militants of Warwick's period have gone except for Warwick. Mm. Now, Warwick is the last survivor of that generation of the, the player-centric game. And he continues to resist. He's a state within a state in Australian cricket through 1920, 21. Uh, and when he went, I'll bet that the administrators of his time said, Goodbye and good riddance. You know, thank God we've we've seen him off. It's really the closing of the golden age, even though we sort of uh, class that as with the breaking or the uh, outbreak of the First World War. But you're right, and it is extraordinary that through all the issues he has with uh, Victorian and Australian cricket authorities, he continues after the war and has great success. It is a yes. remarkable story. Um, Gideon, how are we? He does, but he has great he has he has, he has great success in spite of rather than because of the administration. Yes, because when he's appointed captain in November nineteen twenty, they only appoint him for one test, and it's only on the odd vote. Hmm. And you know they basically they, they suffer him. They know he's great. They know he's the only man for the job, but they hate having him as captain. Right. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah, in, in February nineteen twenty one. The VCA suspends him for withdrawing from a Sheffield Shield match on the match morning because he's injured without informing the team manager. And there's a protest outside the MCG where 10,000 people right. turn up <laughs> to to protest against the uh, the decision by the VCA. That's unprecedented. Yeah. And it's un, unequaled in Australian cricket. Mm. Um, you know, we didn't get that in the case of Sandpaper Gate. We had we had a virtual mob rather than a rather than a physical mob. But it was astounding mm. how resilient Warwick was in the face of administrative overreach. Just getting 10,000 protesters at a state game is extraordinary enough. But uh, no, you're, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Gideon, how are we today meant to assess the the big six? So uh, the big six are the six cricketers who refused to tour England in 1912 for the Triangular Series, which uh, possibly worked in their favour because it was an ill-fated series due to weather and, and poor planning mm, and yeah. South Africa weren't as competitive as the uh, administrators hoped. So the big six were uh, Clem Hill, Victor Trumper, Hanson Carter, Tibby Cotter and Vernon Ransford, uh, along with Warwick. Mm. Um, are, should we yes. view them as martyrs today or were they just agitators i think the important thing is to see 1912 in the context of 1906 which is actually probably in hindsight the more significant dispute it's where the board basically prevent the melbourne cricket club from organizing cricket tours the way that they had in the past you know previously uh, the mcc had been the center of authority for cricket in Australia, uh, the board wishes to usurp their power, and they do so by, you know, by basically ensuring that the uh, that the MCC cannot get access to the Sydney Cricket Ground for for that summer, and then they, I think, successfully petitioned the Victorian government 
to uh, change the Melbourne Cricket Ground trustees to jeopardise the Melbourne Cricket Club's tenure at the uh, at the MCG, and eventually the uh, the Melbourne Cricket Club had to retire from the field, licking its wounds. And from that point on, uh, I think the players were exposed that they'd lost their big ally, they'd lost their big organising party. Uh, uh, with, with whom they'd basically run Australian cricket for the previous 15 or so years, by sort of an entente cordiale. And the last vestige of player power was the right to choose their own manager for a cricket tour. It was a small right, but it was a residual right. There'd been a fight over it in 1909, where the players had appointed Frank Laver uh, over and above... The, um, the board's appointment of, of Peter McAllister. McAllister had signally failed in his duty to act as treasurer because basically Labor wouldn't give him access to the, uh, to, to the books of accounts or the proceeds of the tour. So that first administrative encroachment on the players' finances fails. But in 1912, they're taking no chances. They appoint uh, George Crouch as manager. They refuse to accept the players' right to appoint Frank Labor again. And the players go, well, that's it. That's it. We've already been stripped of the right to choose our own captain. Uh, they'd lost that right in, in 1910. The board had taken over the um, what had previously been a player's prerogative of appointing their own captain on tours. Now they were losing the right to choose their manager. And that big six decided that they would rather not tour under those circumstances, the players that you enumerate before. But it, was a, it had been a policy of pinpricks by the board since 1906. And 1912 was kind of the last step in that, in that process. Perhaps it was an inevitable final confrontation. It would have been interesting if, if of course, it would have been interesting if the First World War had never happened. But exactly how uh, Australian cricket would have fared had those players continued a little bit longer, uh, whether... Uh, the Australian public would have been satisfied with the uh, circumstances of 1912, whether the players would have been able to reassert their authority, um, we'll never know. Probably by the time the First World War comes around, um, it, the, the, the board's authority is ensconced. Warwick is, of course, appointed as Australian captain on the tour of South Africa, 1914-15, that never takes place. So presumably, you know, fences had been mended sufficiently that, that Warwick uh, could accept the board dominion there. But certainly by 1920, 21, he's the, he's the last Mohican. He's the last member of his tribe. Uh, he's, he's, you know, raging against the dying of the light. But it's a, it's a one-man battle by, by 1920, 21. I just want to finish, Gideon, with um, a couple of questions about Warwick's legacy um, and how we should view him today. For the modern cricket fan, uh, if they know anything about Warwick Armstrong, it's probably his enormous cricket shirt, which is on display in Melbourne and yes. this, this humongous yeah. figure 
I said both physically and figuratively before, um, you know, the images of mm. him as literally the big ship, um, you know, uh, executing that drive, that photo of him. Um, mm. uh, do you think uh, his early years are unfairly forgotten? I mean, reading your book, that's when, you know, a lot of this these issues are kicking off and it's fascinating to see, um, you know, the, the back and forth with the establishment, but also, as we mentioned before, you know, his adoption of leg theory, his, his wonderful mm. uh, early cricket feats. Do you think we've largely um, uh, forgotten the early Warwick years? Yeah, he's not an easily he's not an easy cricketer to define in the way that a trumper or a or a hill is naturally identified with the uh, with the, with the golden age. That that span of his career uh, tends to confuse um, onlookers. You know, what sort of relationship do we have to the nineteen twenties? Barely understand that. That seems even longer ago in some respects than the, uh, the than the golden age. Uh, how do we remember him? Well. He's the arch competitor. He incarnates many of the attitudes that we have subsequently begun to come to accept about Australian cricket. That we play cricket hard. Uh, we there are no holds barred on the cricket pitch. Uh, Warwick is even associated with incidents of sledging. Um, he attempts a mancad in a Sheffield Shield game in 1914-15, unsuccessfully. Um, if if he'd managed to to run Eric Bull out in that game against New South Wales at the SEG in 1914, we might have been calling it an Armstrong <laughs> rather than a mancad. Yeah. Uh, he once appeals for um, uh, a timed out dismissal uh, in a in a grade game in uh, in in Melbourne because the opening batsman for the opposition. Took too long to, uh, to to come to the wickets at the at the end of a day's play. Yeah, he's constantly thinking about how to win, mm. and any trick will do. Yeah, um, I, I don't think he's he's a cheat, but he's you know he's definitely um, you know, he he wants he wants it all. Yeah, he's he's uncompromising and uh, and and unapologetic about saying so. And look, you're right you're right about the size. The size is kind of, you look at him and you think, how on earth could a man like that have, have played cricket? Uh, you know, in, in an era when of today where every cricketer is a gym junkie and, and sylph-like and uh, subsisting on uh, you know, a diet of, of macrobiotic rice. But in Warwick's era, cricket grounds were probably even bigger than they are today. The pitches were still 22 yards. The days were still long. The days were still hot. Mm. And if you look at Warwick in 1921, from October to October, he scores 2,282 runs at 56. He bowls 5,420 deliveries and takes 117 wickets at 15.5 in that year. And he wins eight test matches out of the 10 in which he's captain. Yeah. I mean, they're astonishing figures. Uh, look, we're a statistical age. If you can't apprehend Warwick by any other means, look at his statistics, and they are absolutely phenomenal. It's a good point. And I'm just reminded of one last tale of Warwick 
which fits his personality perfectly. I forget which tour it was, maybe 1905, possibly 1909, where there was still the practice or the custom of allowing a bowler to have a practice delivery or to practice practice deliveries for as long as they want. And um, Mm. I think for something like 40 minutes, Warwick is running up and down and practicing his bowling technique while the poor batsmen just have to wait there. Um, and of course, this it was Frank Woolley on his test yeah. taboo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's in, uh, and the story is recounted in, uh, in Frank Woolley's book, King of Games. Yeah. It's pretty astounding. The crowd is booing. Of course. The crowd know exactly what's going on. It is, it is gamesmanship by any other name. Psychology. Yeah. And yet it happens in this period, the golden age of cricket, which we identify with the, uh, with the, um, you know, with the, the, the purest of, of motivations and the, and the highest standards of sportsmanship. Mm. Things are never quite as they seem. Yes. And finally, Gideon, what would Warwick Armstrong think of modern cricket, day-night cricket, white ball cricket, women's cricket? Do you think he would have been um, a supporter of modern cricket or would he have clung to the traditions of the game? He'd have liked the money <laughs> and... He'd have liked the volume of cricket because this is a man who could never get enough of cricket. He, he would play anywhere, anytime against any opposition. Uh, you know, he 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 loved the game, and and the game loved him back. I think. Um, what would he think now? He would complain about the lack of players' versatility. You know, that, that that generation were very wedded to the idea that uncovered wickets made for better players uh, and that when the balance between bat and ball was disturbed, then something went out of the game. You know, he was, Warwick was very critical of cricket between the wars. He didn't, he felt it, the quality had fallen off a great deal in the sort of Bradman Ponsford era of of doped pitches and uh, and high scores uh, so he was very loyal to to his own generation and he would probably feel a little bit the same about you know very flat wickets today and and very high scores uh i think like any great cricketer he would adapt i, I think you know we, we we tend to think of uh historical periods as as too distinct Basically, the core skills, even if they're uh, they're perhaps wider these days than that than they were before, there's a greater number of strokes and a greater variety of deliveries. Given the same circumstances and the same opportunities, great players would be great players in any era, and uh, and Warwick had the desire to dominate and the desire to win that goes to the very heart of uh, of, of modern cricket. You know, that's why I call this book. Warwick Armstrong and the making of modern cricket. He anticipates a whole lot of things that we think of as much newer than they are. Well, Gideon, thanks so much for taking the time and effort to revisit Warwick, as it were, after all these years. Um, Your book, The Big Ship, Warwick Armstrong and the Making of Modern Cricket from 2001 has a lot of fans out there still to this day. And I'm sure they're listening today and would have cherished hearing you talk about it. So thank you so much. Well, there can't be that many fans because I've seen the royalty statements, but maybe they've borrowed it from the library. <laughs> um, it's, it's probably, maybe it's got more fans than actual buyers. Well, 
I'm hoping after this podcast, sales are going to skyrocket. So, um, you know, okay. we'll, we'll see right. what happens. But thank you very much. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. That's all from me. My name is Tom Ford. Remember to follow or subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.